is Commentate Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Big show planned today. Um, we're going to be talking all about the new NBN special access undertaking, which came out on Monday afternoon. Uh, it was instantly shot down by both the ACCC and RSPs, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But also spend a bit of time looking at NBN's defense of its position, um, simply because they aren't able to, because they're still in caretaker conventions, and we'll talk, talk a bit about that later. Um, we've also got a, a bit of a na- national security bent to today's episode. We're going to be looking at what the Quad was up to in their Japan meeting. That's that's India, Australia, J- Japan, the US. They had some interesting announcements about telecommunications. And also we'll take a look at what China's up to in the South Pacific, now looking to form packs around communications and cybersecurity with a whole bunch of South Pacific nations and in a, in a manner that um, is a direct challenge to Australia's own involvement in the region. The first up, Optus results today for their financial year, which ends in April. Now, I always find Optus results are, make an interesting barometer for the industry at large because they're not the dominant telco. That's Telstra. And Telstra's market share reduces as a matter of policy design with things such as the MBN and, and the various competition controls on it. And, of course, the smaller challenger telcos don't make a big, a great proxy for how the industry as a whole is going because they're challengers, they're building market share against the big guys. So Optus, I think, looking at their results, gives you a, a pretty good um, taste of where the industry's at. Now, the results today, um, yeah, they, 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 they weren't great, but they weren't bad either. Um, their earnings were up. Uh, EBITDA up 3.5%. EBIT up um, 32% to 249% million dollars for the full year now that uh, that's a reflection of mainly a decline in operating expenses of 8.4 percent because revenue also declined 5.8 percent but at the same time Optus did very well on mobile service revenues up seven percent in fact a lot a lot of that shortfall fall of both revenue and costs came from slower than usual equipment sales so that, that's interesting and that was attributed to things such as equipment shortages, COVID-19 disruptions, and, and so on. Anyway, better, better uh, to hear it straight from Optus itself and not me. Here's what CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin had to say all about the results earlier today. I mean, it's been a big year for Optus as we've delivered profitable growth underpinned by our market differentiation and our customer-centric approach. The positive momentum that you can see in this, which has been the second year uh, since I've been the CEO and the second year of our strategy, uh, has been reinforced by continued heavy investment in competitive infrastructure and services, delivering on our commitment to provide customers with innovative solutions, choice, and value. This progress was despite continuing challenging market conditions from the ongoing COVID-19 disruptions, which were quite severe this year, as well as equipment shortages and slow recovery of international travel. Our EBITDA grew by 3.5% to just over $2 billion. Our EBITDA saw a double-digit increase of 32% to $249 million. Our mobile service revenue increased 6.9% with Optus Choice plans generating both subscriber growth and a strong uplift in ARPU of 8.1%. And discipline cost management also saw our operating expenses decline 8.4%. Notwithstanding the business challenges, 
we accomplished an incredible amount this year, focusing on the delivery of customer-centric, innovative, and meaningful technology solutions for our customers. We've now launched eight living network features. We've announced our entry into the growing smart spaces segment. We gave our customers greater control and flexibility over their streaming subscriptions with the launch of Subhub. And as for our fantastic 5G network, it's still the fastest in Australia. But there are some challenges ahead. Um, obviously, the Telstra and TPG lockup would give us serious concerns. And it's not just bad for our business, it takes away customer choice. And it leaves regional communities with reduced network capacity, widening the digital divide and making them vulnerable in times of crisis due to reduced resiliency. Choice and competition is the right of every Australian, which is why we have continued to invest heavily in competitive critical infrastructure that the Australian communities need and deserve. So despite the challenges ahead, I am energised and optimistic about what Optus will continue to deliver as we put the customer at the heart of everything we do and remain committed to our strategy of providing innovative solutions, differentiation, and value for our customers. Now, you, you hear that Kelly spoke there about the proposed um, network combination of Telstra and TBG in regional areas. She's not a fan of the idea. And in the question and answer session, she was asked to elaborate on those thoughts and, and how she thought maybe the merger might impact on Optus's own bottom line. Look, I think that customers are not silly enough to believe that slapping a uh, TPG or a Vodafone logo on the Telstra network creates new competition. So how severely would it impact us? Uh, I can't really speak to that as a hypothetical. I can say that we are definitely uh, very concerned about this trend. It does mean that Telstra would be paid to face less competition, and it risks us going back to a monopoly in the regional areas and entrenching a city and country divide. We would not want to see regional Australia left with higher prices, worse service, and less resilient communities, which is what would happen if you lessen competition. So um, we don't like the idea that there'll be more than 700 less telco towers in regional communities at a time when the world needs more communication infrastructure, not less. So we'll be strongly advocating that the ACCC look very closely at what has been proposed and take the right steps to ensure that there are vibrant, competitive um, uh, factors influencing investment in our sector. And further to my contention that Optus represents a, um, I guess, a, a canary in the telecom coal mine as to how the industry is going, I spoke with their relatively new CFO, Michael Venter, uh, today. He, he comes from the Commonwealth Bank, so he's not a telco kai background. Uh, I, I asked him what impact general economic trends are having on Optus. You know, I'm, I'm talking about things like the supply chain issues, rising inflation, rising interest rates. And you know, potentially, um, potentially uh, reduced incomes and reduced willingness to pay for things such as telecom services. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, um, look, there are, I'll make a couple of comments. Um, I think, as you may know, I'm relatively new to Optus, and the thing that struck me when I joined was um, that at the height of the pandemic, 
uh, we were experiencing our lowest credit default rates. And it sort of took me a while to get my mind around that. And as I was thinking about it, in the during the pandemic, basically what happened is that uh, you know people were disconnected physically from families and work, and so the, the one thing that did connect them was their mobile device. And so people therefore prioritised paying their mobile phone bills. Uh, and if you were in a job, you needed your phone to be effective at uh, be be effective working from home. And if you didn't have a job, you also needed your phone to uh, you know, because you were going to be contacted by potential employers, etc. So that period, I think, will normalise a little bit. And so I do expect uh, a slight normalisation of things like bad debts. It's relatively small in the overall scheme of things. Um, but again, you know, add to that higher inflation, uh, increased interest rates, etc. So I am expecting our credit costs to go up a bit. Uh, the other thing I think which we'll see how it plays out, and we don't have a good view yet, is what people will do with replacing uh, handsets and the frequency of it. We know that even coming into this period, that replacement cycle has lengthened a bit, and I and I suspect it will continue to lengthen as um, handset prices go up because of inflation and demand factors, uh, supply and demand factors actually. Handset prices continue to go up. Um, you know, interest rates, affordability goes down, I suspect uh, those handset replacement cycles will continue to lengthen as well. Yeah. And then uh, just a, a third watch out for us is obviously just the impact on our own operating expenses. So things like uh, wage inflation, uh, inflation cost increases across the rest of the uh, cost category. So things like power and energy usage, um, you know, procuring steel because we've got to build towers and steel costs are going up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's sort of a broader inflation impact. Now, most of, or not most, many of our um, longer-term contracts are locked in, and so things like power and energy, we're pretty much locked in for this financial year. Uh, so we're not expecting big increases in that. Um, some of our very large repair and maintenance contracts. They are longer-term contracts, and so prices locked in for that. Um, so we are somewhat protected. It's not that the whole cost base is exposed to inflation, but obviously at some point there will be a bump back as all of these contracts roll off, uh, etc. Okay. So moving on, the biggest story of the week by far was Nbienco um, releasing its proposed variation to its special access undertaking and the rather large storm of controversy that followed that. Now, just to explain what this is all about, NBN isn't subject to normal telecommunications regulation under its governing act. Instead, it makes what's called a special access undertaking, which governs all its terms and conditions. The ACCC signs off on it, and then that basically is the regulatory regime enshrined in this contract till 2040. Now, the original SAU was rendered sort of or superseded, it's probably a better word, back in 2013 when Malcolm Turnbull implemented the multi-technology mix. This meant that all the product terms and definitions, which were based around fibre to the premises, which was the original network platform of the MBN, were... Um, 
suddenly a little inaccurate. They had to be expanded to cover things like fibre to the node and hybrid fibre coaxial and so on. And even though that happened in 2013, it's 2022 and we still don't have an updated undertaking. So back in 2020, the communications minister, Paul Fletcher, thought, this is a little embarrassing. Let's do something about it. And he told MBNCO, the ACCC and the department, knock their heads together, get it going. So last year, around June, NBN put out a position paper. The ACCC responded with its own. And then they went into a series of, shall we say, leisurely workshops. So when I say leisurely workshops, once a month for 90 minutes, three streams, don't rush it, let's take it through till Christmas. NBN wanted to get this all sorted out and get their undertaking through by Christmas, but the ACLC said, no, 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 you wait till next year. So come March, they were ready to release. Oh no, there's an election campaign coming. The ACLC then said, we'll release it the day after the election. And that happened to be last Monday. So NBN's special access variation uh, special access undertaking variations published. What does it say? Well, it, it made a few concessions to some of the criticisms that RSPs have been making of their pricing. The dreaded CVC, the usage charge, which goes up and down depending on what game patch is circulating that day. Well, they abol- they promised to abolish CVC on the higher speed plans where people use more CVC and, and to um, do twice yearly automatic increases on CVC in the bundles for the lower speed plans. They, they promised some reforms to the legacy losses, which they capitalise, um, weighting them by inflation and not the cost of capital. They said that 25 megabits will be the new entry-level tier for broadband with a cheaper voice offering. And then this is the thing that created the storm of controversy. They said that, well, put in price controls. But if you actually look at, looked at the fine print for the high-speed plans, it was CPI, Plus 3%. Now, guess what? We're, we live in an era of rising inflation. 5% inflation. So that's 8% a year that MBN could theoretically increase their prices by. Now, as you may ex- have expected, and this is not, not particularly uh, Einstein-like <laughs> to, to deduce this, the RSPs did not like it at all. And neither did the ACCC, which decided to cut to the quick and put out its own preliminary analysis at the same time as NBN's special access undertaking was published, where they basically said, we don't like this very much either. And uh, amongst other things, tearing holes in pretty much every facet of what NBN was proposing. So we had Telstra criticise this for saying, well, why, why, NBN should be a bit more worried about affordability since 30% of the population actually aren't connected to it. Optus said some similar things. Focus basically said everyone needs to wake up and realise that people aren't prepared to pay prices for broadband commensurate with the cost of the NBN and something has to be done about it. And of course, TPG also weighed in with similar sentiments. And those four, along with Aussie Broadband, the day after got together and wrote a joint letter to the ACCC saying... We don't like this at all. We think two days into this process, you should abandon the process, ACCC, and move straight to a regime of direct regulation. Cut the NBN out of the discussion. So that's pretty much what happened this week. Now, what one thing we didn't hear, or one uh, party to this discussion we didn't hear too much from this week was NBN Co. itself. And the reason for that is that they don't have a minister. There isn't a sworn-in government. They actually have to clear with their shareholder 
what they say on these things. But there's no shareholder. Wow, funny coincidence, hey? But anyway, we did we did find out a little bit about what MBN Co. thought about this through some submissions that they put into the ACCC accompanying their special access undertaking variation, and particularly one dealing with what they saw as competitive constraints on their pricing. And I'm joined by the executive editor of Comms Day, Rowan Pierce, to tell us exactly what those arguments were. So, so yeah, as you mentioned, I had a, like, obviously, NBN had its own kind of submission, but accompanying that was a lot of material basically trying to make the case for their proposals, um, including a couple of reports that they commissioned from Frontier Economics. Um, one which you mentioned was around competition and kind of incentives for efficient pricing. So essentially, it argues that, like, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, NBN's covered these kind of like price, um, you know, new pricing proposals, but they're actually kind of price caps, not necessarily, you know, they're going to increase pricing by that much. And the argument of this paper is essentially that you've seen the emergence of real infrastructure-based competition, um, while NVN is still having to also, on the other hand, deal with this kind of social and regulatory obligations as a statutory infrastructure provider of last resort. So that includes competition from 5G fixed wireless, which Frontier notes is, you know, now it's not a theoretical possibility, it's a reality, as well as kind of emerging... Um, uh, the emerging threat of LeoSats. And then on the other hand, you also have the other fiber operators, particularly um, Unity Group and um, its Opticom division. So the argument is basically that you've got this kind of growing competition, which means that NBN is going to have an incentive to actually price efficiently because otherwise uh, consumers will switch an alternative, but also it goes for RSPs as well, which if RSPs have kind of alternative infrastructure they can sell services on, then they might be inclined to switch. But I think, um, I think yeah, overall it's kind of... This whole situation is going to be interesting once there is a communications minister. If that's, I mean, you would assume probably Michelle Rowland, but might not be, because um, I think the government's going to face this situation now where you have all these parties where they're going to have to pick winners and losers at some point, and it's kind of like no, not everyone's going to be happy at the end of it. Yeah. Just um, before we move on from that topic, just just to put a bit of form and factor on on what might happen from here. Um, the RSPs have asked the ACCC to abort the SAU process, move to direct regulation. From what I can see, that's not really possible because there's a natural process to be followed here. There are actually rules around these things and, and a statutory process. And ACCC can't unilaterally decide, oh, we're just not going to do this anymore. They actually have to see it through. Now, if they did for some reason abort the process... I understand, even though there aren't merits reviews of ACCC decisions in this arena, there is the ability... Uh, through some sort of obscure act <laughs> um, to appeal these sorts of decisions when they haven't been made properly under proper process. And I suspect NBN might go down that path. But that's probably all moot. What's more likely is that Michelle Rowland will become the minister next Wednesday and will um, uh, have a look at the situation. I can, I, I can guess she might not be too impressed with the behaviour of certain people and certain entities in, in, shall we say, mucking up while the teacher's not in class. And um, she's, she's hoping to her just to intervene directly um, through a, a ministerial determination, telling people what they should be doing. I suspect that's the most likely scenario. So anyway, let's move on. Um, of course, national security was big in the news this week, new government. And uh, first thing Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong did was fly off to Japan to a quad meeting and, of course, all the, the defence cooperation, and the, the commitments on climate change made all the headlines. But there was also some very interesting stuff 
there on telecommunications. Tell us all about it, Rowan. Yes, let's let's move on from the SAU. I think I think people are very happy with that. Um, yeah. So so as you mentioned, I had a look at some of the documents actually released by the White House um, just kind of uh, as the Quad meeting was um, starting. So one interesting um, thing that leapt out was the decision to establish what's called the International Standards Cooperation Network. So this is described as, quote, a mechanism for like-minded allies and partners to share information on technical standard activities and increase situation awareness, coordination and influence in international critical and emerging technology standards. So what, what it's looking like is kind of a new, new standards body which will be separate from the ITU and really let the Quad kind of lock out countries like uh, uh, China and Russia and vendors like Huawei. So there's no actual mention in there of ending participation in the ITU, but obviously there's, it's kind of this push to increase collaboration on standards between uh, allied nations. Um, and I guess part of the context is as well. Um, that at the ITU you do have this kind of showdown. Um, there's the election for the Secretary General um, in October where you've got on one hand a, a former Russian communications minister who's also a former Huawei exec um, facing off against a US-backed candidate. Um, so that was, that was one very interesting thing around telco standards. In there. there was a couple of other things too. There was uh, more cooperation on open RAN, um, particularly around supply diversity, which includes cooperation on technical exchanges and test pairs between members of the Quad, and also a kind of new tech-focused uh, Quad investors network and also some um, uh, increased collaboration on cybersecurity. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point you make there, Rowan, about it's not really a... a a um, replacement for the ITU. My reading of it more is they, they want to be able to develop their stuff in isolation without adversaries in the room and take standards and, and, and I guess, overall ecosystems like, say, Open RAN to a more mature state before they then take it to the ITU. So it's actually about influence and, and uh, I, I guess, shall we say, sub-caucusing, <laughs> not doing it within the ITU, but doing it outside and then coming to the ITU with a more fully formed position. That's my read on it anyway. Thank you very much for joining us today, Rowan. Cheers. Well, moving on, while we're still on a national security theme, things really developed in the Pacific Theatre this week. Um, of course, many of you will be familiar with the shenanigans up in the Solomon Islands regarding security agreements with China. Well, that just expanded to pretty much all of the South Pacific this week. And we discovered that China uh, wants to form data communications and cybersecurity pacts with, it seems like, pretty much every country south of the equator. So to tell us all about it, the chief editor of Comms Day, Simon Ducks. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. So, t- tell us all about what happened and, and uh, how this impacts on Australian telecommunications. Yes, uh, Graham, it's an interesting one uh, because of the fact that it, it became a complete revelation, the fact that uh, China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi was actually visiting eight Pacific Island nations and carrying uh, with him a communique, which, uh, among other things, was talking about data communications cooperation uh, and uh, cybersecurity as well. And uh, this is ahead of a meeting that's happening on the 30th of May uh, with uh, the Pacific Island uh, foreign ministers, essentially. And uh, this, of course, uh, sent palpitations through the Australian government uh, and the foreign minister uh, was immediately uh, sent out to uh, make sure that uh, our position was uh, demonstrated uh, to the local Pacific Island foreign ministers. 
But the key thing for us is that uh, we, we, we looked a little bit at what's happening across uh, Telstra's potential buy with Dig uh, Digicel Pacific. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, the deal, uh, which is 72% funded by the Australian government uh, to acquire Digicel Pacific, gives them uh, a network right across the South Pacific. Uh, and there are some interesting implications here because of this uh, geopolitical push uh, from China. Uh, and we, we identified a couple of areas where we thought that uh, there could be some uh, issues rising this, and that is obviously the equipment manufacturers, uh, but predominantly Huawei and ZTE. Uh, all six of Digicel's networks uh, use uh, Chinese kit, according to our sources. Uh, and uh, not only that, uh, are along uh, Digicel, uh, you can look at uh, people like uh, Telecom Fiji, uh, who are using Huawei kit for their 4G, and they're also building a 10 gig PON domestic fiber network as well. So you can see uh, there's a lot of... Uh, import from uh, the Chinese manufacturers there and of course that becomes a uh, bit more of a strategic and security threat uh, for Australia. So uh, at the time of the acquisition China Mobile was also uh, considered to be a potential suitor uh, although Digicel denied that at the time but uh, there are potential opportunities for China Mobile to look to expand its operations throughout the Pacific uh, when uh, Telstra actually was uh, going through the acquisition, we put that to uh, the CEO, Andy Penn, who suggested that actually building out the infrastructure would not be a simple thing for a potential competitor to Digicel that has quite dominant market positions in the markets it's playing in. So uh, the next step on looking at all of that was the undersea cable side of things. And of course, uh, as we know, um, Huawei is a very big cable uh, manufacturer and uh, installer and uh, on the back of that um, we remember the Australian government funding the cable uh, between uh, uh, Portsmore, uh, Port Moresby and Honiara in the Solomon Islands back to Sydney because of course uh, otherwise uh, it, that would have been built by Huawei. So there's a little bit of flux in uh, the Pacific market at the moment. Uh, Southern Cross Next as we've uh, discussed recently has come online. Uh, we have some very significant cables looking across the Southern Pacific Ocean, uh, completely uh, leaving out uh, China, and that is uh, Humboldt uh, and also the Hawiki Nui cable as well. So there's a lot happening there. But at the same time, some of the Pacific Islands, uh, we look at Tonga, uh, the government there was suggesting that they would like to build a second cable after uh, the volcano. Uh, we uh, look at uh, Samoa's government quietly uh, re uh, uh, requisitioned, if you like, uh, or took back ownership of the uh, Samoa Submarine Cable Company in January, uh, and they it looked as though they uh, did that ahead of uh, Telstra um, fully acquiring uh, Digicel uh, on the island as well. So there's still just a little bit of flux of what's happening uh, on the undersea cable side uh, across. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, 12 months how this develops and just a couple more headaches there that uh, Telstra is going to have to uh, just tread a little bit carefully with. Uh, and one other thing that came out of uh, the China's uh, foreign minister visit uh, is uh, some cooperation around satellites as well. And uh, this is interesting too because um, uh, China was looking to invite the Pacific countries to participate in the Fengyong meteorological satellite system and of course uh, some of that is uh, through maritime surveillance and that potentially rivals existing maritime systems. Uh, we know there are a number including from the likes of uh, Inmarsat 
um, uh, but it also uh, directly goes up against uh, the newly quad-initiated Indo-Pacific Partnership for Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative, which is meant to be helping uh, uh, on uh, fishing and aviation. Yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Of course, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to sound like a uh, uh, defending the China point of view here, but of course, you've had for a few years now, US Team Telecom, you know, home, um, Homeland Security and all those types in America, pretty much putting the kibosh on any cable that might go near China. So effectively, you're pushing China out of the international sub-cable ecosystem. Pretty inevitable that their response to that will be to seek lots of agreements with other countries to build their own. So, you know, this is what happens when you have an international game of whack-a-mole. The stakes just get higher and higher. Thanks very much for joining us today, Simon. That's okay. Thank you, Graham. That's it for Comms Day Live this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.